0: You know, I think we could have just uh, taken the first word of the anthem and the last word of the anthem and just go home. Uh, help us accept each other as Christ accepted us. Renew us with your spirit, Lord. Free us make us one. That's what this is really all about today. It is my pleasure to be with you today. Uh, my, my beautiful bride is here somewhere. Uh, wish you'd wave at me so I could see her. There she is. Hi, sweetie. Yeah, yeah. Like to know where she is when I'm speaking. If I'm really doing something really bad, uh, I'll get a signal and then I'll know to do something different. I also apologize for uh, making you look at my uh, my face today. I uh, I was kidding with someone today. I said, well, you should see the other guy. But not really. Uh, Fact of the matter is, I had an encounter on Thursday with a dermatologist and a plastic surgeon, and and they won, big time. So, uh, but I hope we can have a good time today. I want to talk just a a little bit about the the journey of Adventist Health System on this subject. About 25 years ago, during the time that Marty and Blair was, was CEO of the system, we, uh, I think we all instinctively realized that we needed to focus on this more than, than we than we had been and being more intentional about this. We uh, had some really outstanding uh, programs. We had people come in and, and, and uh, teach us and, and give us some uh, some good insights into into how we think, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, every single one of us, every single one of us, including you, including me, are very powerfully uh, affected by our cultural upbringing and if you'll if you 'll sit through some of those sessions, you will find out something about how you think and how you are powerfully conditioned by by things that happened to you as you were were growing up. I've looked at my own. and I'm going to comment just very briefly on it. That uh, my uh, upbringing in this matter was just absolutely remarkable when I look back on it. I grew up in a small town in Texas, and uh, it was as homogeneous as you can get. The only thing that that separated this absolutely white anglo-saxon protestant town is a third southern baptist a third united methodist and a third church of christ but it was as homogeneous as you can get i started high school in 1959 and i graduated in 1963 we'll put that in context the civil rights act was passed in 1964 the voting rights act was passed in 1965 and the thing that I find remarkable, looking back on it is uh, I never heard not one time in my home growing up any derogatory words about any group or class of people or any distinction among people and when i when I look back on it and, and think about the time that I grew up in and the uh, what was going on, I, I look back and just think that's absolutely unbelievable that that was true as a matter of fact it was so much true that uh, one of my grandmothers who I was very close to and who was a sweet person and loved to study the scriptures uh, made some comments when I was in high school that just literally shocked me to my core I, I couldn't believe it I I couldn't understand you know, why she was using some of the words she was using and saying some of the things she was saying. And later, as I looked at it, I realized uh, how, how fortunate I was and how lucky I was because it said something about my, my mother's influence in particular, and my father too, because they just never brought those kinds of uh, things into, into my home life. And I can remember my mother in particular telling me over and over again, You never, ever, ever judge a person based upon a group or class that they're in. Individuals deserve to be judged uh, as individuals based upon their own being, their own character. I think it was, I think it was a gentleman that we've heard of, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said that he'd longed for the day that he would be judged on the content of his character and not the color of his skin. And that's what my mother was trying to get across to me, is that never fall in the trap of ever making a judgment about a person based upon some category of classification that society puts on them. So the point of that is, is that as, as, as Adventist Health System got into the, uh, the focus on diversity and inclusion, we all had to think about how we may or may not have been influenced by our own upbringing. And it was very, uh, it was very uh, revealing. Now, as we got into this, we realized that, you know, this focus that we had, it is the law of the land. Uh, The only uh, distinction that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, grants is the right of religious organizations to hire people of their own faith in their own ministries? That is the only exception that's granted in the in the Civil Rights Act. So it is the law of the land. It is it is good for business. We understood that. We understood the sociological reasons for diversity and inclusion being good for the work that we were in. We understood that it. We understood that it helped us. Do a better job of taking care of patients because if we could understand more about their background and their culture and what they were and their their faith background and where they were coming from, if we had people sometimes who could speak their language, then we could do a better job of meeting meeting their their healthcare needs. But underneath it all, and this is this is what I've tried to do in, in my own leadership about this about this topic in particular. It is the only way that Adventist health system can extend the healing ministry of Christ is by accepting every person of any category as being equal before God. I've always been determined that everything that we do in our system, that we find the highest possible ground from which to carry out any work we do. And I believe that that inclusion and diversity uh, was of God. And it was, as a matter of fact, the only way we could carry out our mission was in an inclusive way. Because otherwise we'd make a mockery of of what we say and do because we'd be denying the, the very words of Christ. I'm going to see if I can just take you through for a few minutes this morning and let the scripture speak for itself and try to prove to you from the scripture that inclusion and diversity is from God. This, this isn't a man-made institution, it's from God. So I'm just going to take you through a few stories. And, uh, and let's just, as a matter of fact, I had so many, so many, so many examples in scripture where, where God is trying to hammer home the idea of, of our brother and sisterhood that it was, you know, I knew we'd be here too, too long. So I had to narrow down the ones that I chose. So here goes, though. I'm going to pick just a few. And I'm, I'm just going to talk you through the story rather than try to uh, go and read every word of the story in the Scripture. But in, in, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus has an encounter with a, with a Samaritan woman. He meets her about noon, uh, at a small town in Samaria, the, the, the area that was the northern kingdom, uh, right outside that little small village of Sychar. And the well that, uh, that he encountered her with was Jacob's well. And about noontime, Jesus is sitting there. The disciples have gone ahead into the town to get some food. And Jesus asked this woman... If he would give her a drink, would he, if he would give her some water. Now, we look at it and say, well, what's the big deal? And see, that, that was part of the problem of the, of the apostles. In a way, they, they weren't there, but somehow this story got recorded. So, Jesus later probably told them this story and, and, and spoke about this encounter so that this would be sure to be recorded and in, in, in his holy word but what was big about this is that first of all in that society in that culture a man would not talk to a woman you'll see here the man woman thing man being superior would not talk to a woman but even more than that a jew would not talk to a samaritan Samaritans were regarded as half-breeds. They were regarded as half-breeds racially and half-breeds spiritually. Half-breeds because they were the the, the remnant of of, uh, Jewish people who were left behind uh, when the the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom. and, And they sent in people to intermarry. And so there's a feeling that somehow they lost their racial purity at that time. And that they also were not worshiping the way they should. And as this story unfolds, that this all comes to the fore. You know, first the woman is stunned. And then she says... Um, Jesus says to her, you know, woman, if you really knew who I, who I was, I could offer you living water and you would never thirst again. Now, she liked that proposition because apparently she came every day at noontime when no one else was there drawing water because... The, the, the lazy men came and drew it early in the morning, you know, when it was not hot. She, because she felt like she was an outcast, came at the, the hottest time of the day so she could be by herself and wouldn't be embarrassed. And she thought that was a good deal to have uh, living water and she would never thirst again. But then Jesus says to her, well, before we talk about this living water anymore, go bring your husband. And he asked that question because he was most interested in her spiritual welfare. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, that's correct. You've had five before. You've had five husbands before. And um, the one that you're living with now is not your husband. It'd be real popular for us then, again, being good moral people to jump to the conclusion that this was a, um, a loose living woman. She may, she may have been, but we have, we have no basis of knowing that, particularly when you understand that the only way divorce can happen in this society is for a man to divorce a woman. A woman cannot get a divorce, even today cannot get a divorce in an orthodox community. So I don't know. It could very well be that she's found herself used and abused over and over again by men who chose to live with her while and and send her out. And uh, I just don't know. And you don't know. But we just need, again, keep in mind that what's the first thing we tend to do? We We jump to an assumption we jump from we jump an immediate assumption which may or may not be valid. But nonetheless, Jesus has spoken to this half-breed woman who uh, has had a very, very difficult time with her married life. And he offers her living water. Water that will, where she will never, ever thirst again. And then that produces a discussion about where we're between jews and samaritans about where where you should worship and jesus makes a statement one of the wonderful statements after they discussed that for a while he said well woman the fact of the matter is that there's going to come a time when you're neither going to worship god in jerusalem or in samaria but you're going to worship him in spirit and in truth because god is spirit so that's one encounter that this has great meaning to me as i think about Uh, how God looks upon people and the unity of people versus the way we look upon people. There's another encounter that Jesus told about. Actually, this is a parable. And again, he chose a Samaritan. There was a... uh, You know the story real well. There was a man that was going from uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho which was a dangerous thing in and of itself at that time, going through tough, tough mountainous terrain. And uh, he, he finds himself attacked by thieves. And uh, he's left in really, really bad shape, just on the side of the road. Uh, I don't know whether his, he was in danger of, of dying or not, but he was, he was in bad condition. And you know the story... First, a uh, an ordained clergyman came by. And then a lay leader came by. Let's say first a uh, uh, an ordained pastor came by and did, did nothing for him, absolutely nothing. Just passed by on the other side, afraid to be contaminated again by the Samaritan. This half-breed. Get the story? This half-breed. Jesus is making a point here. He's trying to He's trying to make a point to all of us in these stories. They passed by, and then the local elder passed by and did nothing for him. And then finally, the hated, half-breathed Samaritan came by, and you know the story. Now, this, this whole uh, story was told in regard to the question, who is my neighbor? And the people that asked the question were doing everything in their power to limit the, uh, the, the demands of the question. If I can narrow this down, uh, you know, far enough that my neighbor is, say, maybe uh, a good friend of mine who's in my own tribe, then maybe I have some obligations to that person, but I don't want this obligation to neighborhood to get too big. It could require too much of me. And so Jesus told the story on purpose to make the point— that the one who was the neighbor, as the J.B. Phillips translation says, is the one who gave practical help. The one who proved himself a neighbor is the one who provided practical help. And it had nothing to do with, in terms of being judged about how good a neighbor you are or how good of uh, uh, a job you did in being a neighbor. It had nothing to do with your credentials, it had nothing to do with your religious credentials. Had nothing to do with your racial credentials it was simply who was the one who provided the practical help needed again i think the lord trying to teach us trying to teach us again and again this story there is an encounter another one i'm not going to i'm not going to say a lot about it today but um, you know i am a teacher at heart and and i i have to always leave an assignment and and i'm going to leave one for you today and, and here's the way it goes. There is an encounter that's told, the most amazing encounter that's told, where Jesus takes the apostles. And they go to an area which would be uh, really north of current Beirut. And, and it, the, 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 the encounter, again, is with a woman. And she's spoken of as a Syrophoenician woman. As best we can tell, Jesus just went there to have this one encounter with this one woman in front of his disciples, and then he came right back to, uh, to, to, the, to Nazareth to carry on his ministry. It's, it's just most puzzling when you read it. And there's no question, it, it's a story that we read, and we, we read it as if it's a story of great faith, which it is. But if you go to that encounter and read that story of the Syrophoenician woman, but, but do this, do this one thing. Read it as if Jesus and the woman are carrying out a play, if you will, in front of the disciples in order to teach them what their attitude was like. In other words, that what the woman was saying and what Jesus was saying was portraying to the disciples their own attitudes. Again, their own their own uh, biases and prejudices. That that, that that's an, another one. Now, I'm going to go into really the last the last story. And I'm sorry I had to cut so many down, but uh, this is a story that's found in the tenth chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, Peter, Simon Peter, finds himself in Joppa, right on the the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And the other character in the story is a Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius. And he's in Caesarea, which is 30 miles away uh, from Joppa. Peter's in Joppa. Cornelius is in uh, Caesarea. Now, it's said of Cornelius, that the story starts uh, um, with him a second. But it is said of him that Cornelius was a very uh, faithful, very devout, very religious man who was wonderful to the, to the Jews. Uh, he was actually a part of the occupying army. He, he was a part of the Roman garrison, if you will, that was designed to keep everyone under control. A centurion, as it just says, is an officer over a hundred. And his rank, if you're using modern terminology, was, was of a captain. We still use, frankly, the, 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 the military structure that the Romans used because this centurion was a part of the Italian regiment, which would be about 3,000 soldiers. But he was a very devout man that was very kind to all the the Jews. And almost simultaneously with each other, you know the story. uh, Peter has a vision and Cornelius has a vision. Cornelius' vision is he, an, an angel appears to him and says that your prayers and your offerings on behalf of the poor and the needy have gone up to God as if it was a memorial. And I want you to send some men to Joppa to find a man whose name is Simon or his name is Peter. And I want you to have those men ask him to come back to your home. About the time this is going on, Peter is having a vision. He goes up on the, on the top of the roof to, uh, to pray. And while there, it says in the scripture, he fell into a trance. And this uh, large sheet came down out of heaven with every kind of critter that you can imagine. And most of these critters were the kind that the jews considered unclean and in the vision uh, peter is told by the lord to rise up and eat peter is absolutely uh, appalled as again we would be based upon it again our um, our cultural upbringing as he was and he said lord i would I would never, ever, ever, ever eat anything that was unclean. And you and I, you and I both know this This, this, this parable and this story isn't about, uh, isn't about what we should eat. If, if you think that's what this story is about, you need to start all over and, and, from, from the beginning, because it's not about that. The Lord is trying to teach Peter an important lesson through the work of, uh, of, of this man Cornelius. And this happens then, this happens two more times. And about the time of the, of the end of the third vision, the men from Caesarea appear at his door and say, and say, are you, are you Simon Peter? And he says, yes, I am. He said, well, my master, who is, who is very, very generous to the Jews, is a very religious and devout man, had a vision that we were to come and ask you to come to his home. And Peter goes to his home. And as he, it took, it's got to take a while. It's 30 miles different, so it's got to take a couple of days to get there, at least I'm I'm thinking. And when Peter comes to Cornelius' home, Cornelius falls down before him as if in worship. And Peter has enough sense to say, no, 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 get up, I'm just a man. He sure got that right. I'm just a man. But then Peter goes on to say to to, to the household there, you do realize, don't you, that under our law, It's considered wrong for me to even meet you and greet you, much less come into your home. But they said, the Lord is showing me that God is no respecter of persons. The other thing he says is that I'm also learning that anything that that God has declared uh, pure, I am never to consider it unclean. And I'm here to tell you that has to do with everything about any any biases or prejudices we have about classes and groups of men. Any Anything. Absolutely anything. Uh, can you put the passage of Scripture up there from... Uh, the first one from the book of Acts chapter that, that that's the first one I just want to look at for a minute, just so you can see it there. Then Peter began to speak, and this is after he got to he got to Caesarea. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And he goes, and it's an amazing story. He stays there. Uh, well, he actually stays there for a day, and then he goes back to uh, uh, f- from Joppa to Caesarea, and he goes into the home and the whole home is converted and received the gift of the Holy Spirit and and this is just, this is just exploding peter 's mind it 's just bl- blowing him apart. all of his c- uh, cultural baggage. All of the things that uh, ha- have been, been beaten into him, he's beginning to realize are just not the way things should be. Now, it's interesting. Um, you know that, that, that the church became very active in, in uh, Syrian Antioch. There's two Antiochs. This is an Assyrian Antioch. And the church apparently was made up of of Jews, primarily. And it hadn't yet perhaps exploded into the Gentiles as much as it would a little bit later. And along come a group of Jews who were also believers who said, you have to become a, a, a Jew to accept the Messiah. And you must be circumcised and you must adhere to all the Jewish uh, ceremonial laws. And that caused a whole big delegation to go back to the church in Jerusalem and for all the leaders to meet. And they, and they sent, they debated for a few days, had 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 I guess something like a, a general conference meeting and they debated for a few days. And sent the men back with basically saying, no, 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 no. You're saved one way. You're saved by your faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And the only thing we would ask of you is that you shun sexual immorality, that you shun blood, and that you uh, shun uh, strangled uh, animals said other than that we have nothing else we have nothing else to to trouble you with and we're sorry that you were troubled by these people and you know the history of the church uh, and you know what happened in Paul and his missionary journeys that e- everywhere he went falling behind him were a group of people that said it's not just one thing to accept Christ and his salvation but you must be, be converted as a Jew and it just caused all kinds of heartaches with with the, uh, the early church. Now, if you put Galatians uh, chapter, let's see, you got more than that? I can read it. If that's all you got, that's fine. Maybe that's all I gave you. Let me pull it out and read it. That's the last thing I wanna focus on right here this morning. Galatians chapter three to me is the one that nails it down. It is the passage of Scripture that ought to be the basis of any, of any conversation about inclusion versus exclusion. It is this uh, one passage in the book of Galatians. It's in chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. That's good. That's a good place to begin. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with him. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That ought to be the Brother Lou, that ought to be the the, uh, the foundational passage of anything we do around inclusivity or diversity is that particular passage right there. Right now, as we think about the world that's around us, I, I just wanna, one of the stories I was gonna share with you, but I'm not, was the, uh, the story of Jonah. And I'm not going to... That's a, that, that's a wonderful Old Testament example of, uh, of inclusion and and, and overcoming um, ex- exclusion. But today on the plains of Nineveh, which are in Syria, the plains of Nineveh are in, are in modern day Syria. And they're called the plains of Nineveh because of that ancient city. And there's this beautiful, beautiful land which... which Which is right in the foot, right in the foothills of the mountains, and there are churches there that were founded by the apostles in the first century, and they have. these, These are Christian communities that have been worshiping there in those spots in the plains of Nineveh from the times of the apostles. They conduct their services in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. And they are about to be destroyed now by the hatred that's been let loose in Syria. And at a time like this, when we are confronted with, with something like this, which uh, seems so raw and so... Uh, the, the hatred feels like it's just right there on the surface and, and the lives of a person who is who is not of the right tribe and, and the right faith can be snapped in a minute, your head cut off there has never been a time in my lifetime when it was more important for the followers of, uh, of Jesus Christ to fight this hatred, to fight this, to, to fight this ideology, do everything in our power to remind people that the message that, that Jesus has is that we are one. And even in a situation where we're not religiously one, We need to remember what Jesus told told us, that we're to love our enemies. And he said, matter of fact, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to be perfect, like Jesus was perfect, you must love your enemies and not give in to this hatred and and not give in to this ideology. Uh, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we ought to be... We ought to be the most accepting, uh, the most loving people on, on this planet and and recognize that this is the way God wants us to be. And in the case of the Adventist cell system, this is the only ground on which we should ever base our uh, diversity and inclusion program. Thank you.